Hello and welcome to the third day of our podcast recordings from the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology annual meeting in Baltimore. Today is Monday, May 29th. My name is Ibrahim Shatat and I will be your host for today's podcast recording. With me, I have a wonderful panel to discuss today's meeting highlights. I'm going to start by asking my panel to introduce themselves. Um, my name is Jennifer Jatan and I come from the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital. And I am Joseph Flynn and I'm uh, from the Division of Nephrology at Seattle Children's Hospital. And I am John Mann from Nationwide Children's Hospital of The Ohio State University. Thank you. First, I'm going to start by congratulating Dr. Joseph Lynn, the recipient of this year's Barnett Award. Congratulations. And, and I'm going to ask him to talk to us about uh, sessions he attended today um, in his uh, area of expertise, hypertension in children. So the day started out with a really amazing session on neonatal hypertension. And uh, before I talk about the individual talks, I would just make a note that the room was uh, standing room only, and the overflow room was standing room only. So this was an extremely popular session, and I think there was quite um, a large attendance by neonatologists and general pediatricians, as well as by nephrologists. Uh, we had four talks. Um, Andrew South from Wake Forest University talked about um, some of his very interesting research on um, early events that influence later blood pressure. Um, I talked about diagnosis of hypertension in uh, neonates and evaluation of infants with high blood pressure. David Askenazi talked about acute kidney injury and its relationship to high blood pressure um, later in life. And then Monisha Gupta um, from All Children's Hospital uh, talked about um, the treatment of neonatal hypertension. What uh, lessons or take-home messages would you like to share with uh, um, ASPN membership or anybody who listens to this podcast? Well, I think <clears throat> one uh, message is that we don't really have enough information on what levels of blood pressure are really uh, harmful in an infant. And so how to diagnose hypertension in a neonate is pretty much still a gray area. Um, there's also good information, I think, emerging that um, AKI does lead to hypertension later in life, although we're waiting for data from AWAKEN and other studies on neonatal AKI and later hypertension. Um, definitely the data uh, are there for um, showing an effective AKI and hypertension later in life, so we're just waiting for the neonatal data. Um, we also realized today how very little we know about uh, the treatment 
and in uh, our the pharmacological treatment of uh, of neonatal hypertension um, what messages would you like uh, to um, tell the membership uh, right well <clears throat> the treatment of neonatal hypertension actually came up again in the hypertension platform session where Nina Zhao presented the results of a Midwest Pediatric Nephrology Consortium uh, study on um, outcome of hypertension in um, infants, showing that uh, the majority of infants do resolve their hypertension by two years of age. Um, both her study and the data that um, Munisha Gupta uh, showed uh, really demonstrate that it is the wild, wild west out there, that um, people are using all kinds of medications to treat neonates with hypertension, even present medications that are concerning for um, renal development, like ACE inhibitors. And so hopefully this study from the Midwest group will provide us with additional information that might let us make more rational choices about treatment of hypertension in neonates. Thank you. I'm going to move uh, to Jennifer and ask you about the session you spoke uh, in um, about uh, end-stage renal disease in the neonates and challenges that faces us as practitioners in the field. Uh, what would you like to share with us from that session? Um, I was really grateful to be asked to be a part of that session. Uh, I think it's certainly, I showed data from our very small unit in Iowa that shows that we are taking care of more and more of these babies. Um, and I think this session highlighted really nicely that we're all struggling with what the right decisions are, um, whether to support them, how to support them, and what happens uh, long term. Um, this session uh, included a, a really nice um, uh, talk by Dr. Debbie Stein from uh, Boston Children's Hospital. She led the session off about on um, talking about prenatal counseling and how we how we talk to families, how we really even should don't know even when presented with uh, babies that have anhydramnios or oligohydramnios how um, poor we are at predicting what's going to happen down the road. Even though these families are really desperate to have some concrete answers. I had the um, challenge of talking about how we might try to dialyze these small babies. Um, and then Dr. Twombly, Catherine Twombly from MUSC um, Charleston, South Carolina, talked about how we then get them from dialysis to transplant um, and talked about principles of nutrition and growth and vaccines. And then um, the last session was really quite powerful. Um, Dr. Renee Boss from Johns Hopkins is a, um, a neonatologist but also trained in uh, palliative care medicine and talked about the ethical challenges, which I think were, um, that was quite the elephant in the room throughout our first three talks. Um, and so she had, she got to do the heavy lifting in terms of bringing up all the um, reasons why we all struggle with, um, with what we're doing with these particular patients. Thank you. Um, uh, you mentioned something about machines and babies and the problem that we all face where all these machines are uh, designed 
and approved for adults and we end up using them in children. Um, what would you like to share uh, more about that with us and um, what, um, since many people will be listening to this podcast, what message you wanted to, mm -hmm. to get out there? Um, I think because the, the numbers of babies are relatively few, even though for us the amount of time and um, emotion and uh, care we have to give them, um, in absolute numbers there aren't that many, so there hasn't been um, the right incentive for industry or the um, tech for companies to design smaller catheters. Um, and smaller machines for this particular population. Um, in addition, um, I, and I, I don't know if either of my other colleagues at the table know um, why it's taking uh, Carpe Diem, which was a machine designed specifically for um, the, these patients, why it's taking so long to move through um, the FDA process. That's not anything I, I know if I have the right answers for, but um, there are, I know, it feels like if they're being able to use it successfully in Europe that um, we certainly would benefit from, from it and there, we would welcome it into our NICUs in the United States. I, li I liked your comment. Um, the machines are big and our patients are small. I think that really sums it up. And that was a theme that came up even in the phoresis talk as well. Um, all the phoresis machines, um, they're adult. Um, adult size and not only are the machines big and we're extrapolating our machines but all of our data feels like it comes from adult populations and we end up extrapolating it down for our small patients which probably is not appropriate to compare a, a two kilo baby to a you know an 80 kilo adult person. Thank you so much. I'm going to move on to Dr. Uh, John Mahan uh, to tell us a little bit about uh, one of the sessions um, that was about uh, serving the underserved patients in nephrology. And later I'm going also to ask him to share with us a little bit about the leadership program okay. that he champions. <laughs> Thank you, Ibrahim. Yes, uh, I'll touch on two presentations that serving the, the underserved in pediatric nephrology. First of all, it's a wonderful um, seminar and, and it's not a topic that really has been uh, widely disseminated and it's really neat to see ASPN prioritizing this. Uh, I think two, uh, two presentations that I hope come out in, in publication soon for everyone. Uh, the first one uh, should be highlighted. The first one was Aaron Whiteman's uh, presentation on uh, care of children uh, with intellectual disabilities. And Aaron's from Seattle and uh, has an ethicist background and just did a wonderful job um, presenting both the pros and cons of providing extensive uh, care like dialysis and even renal transplantation to children with significant intellectual disabilities. And, and I thought he did a great job of pre presenting both sides. And, and I, I love his final uh, conclusion was from a, uh, a practical sense of, you know, our task would be to optimize the, the chances of these children having survival and, and uh, survival that is not full of you know, physical, mental uh, harm. So, so it's survival, and sometimes you talk about meaningful survival, sometimes optimal survival, but, but I think uh, having a, a, a construct around, having a construct around the, um, 
uh, the, the patient's survival with a, a you know a meaningful life with, without undue harm is really a, a great lens to think about things. And and it, in his final summary, his conclusion was that uh, that the transplant teams have a moral obligation to actually process these types of decisions, uh, and and also that it is ethically permissible in working with the parents who help us define what is a meaningful life and, and what is undue harm to come to decisions to transplant these children or to not transplant these children. So that was uh, really well done. And then the other presentation that I think uh, is very meaningful was the one from Deidre Cruz from Hopkins. And she talked about um, the, the uh, impact of, of race and other disparities on outcomes in pediatric nephrology patients. And, once again, a reminder of the profound impact of socioeconomic factors and social determinants of health. We spend so much time on chakra levels and social determinants of health or, or trump everything. And just two tidbits from her uh, extensive presentation. The, the first one was the whole time to transplant and transplant outcomes. That, and the African-Americans do much more poorly. A large part of that social determinants of health. Um, and, and um, you know, that, that continues to hold back patients in this country. Um, and then the other interesting story was uh, what's being shown in terms of APO1 gene um, abnormalities in cardiovascular disease. And in those populations, you can have two bad genes and you have a high incidence of cardiovascular disease. Um, and of course, that's increased in the African-Americans. But if you have one bad gene, you're considered low risk for bad outcomes, but you're still worse than the Caucasians. Uh, but interestingly, when they go in and look at the social uh, economic status, that almost completely takes away this worse outcome for the low-risk African-Americans. So again, I think driving home the fact that social determinants are so important to outcomes of our patients, and uh, we really need to spend uh, you know, significant effort in, in under uh, covering those features and then uh, marshalling our resources to address them. Yeah, I think uh, it's very interesting, and I think this theme have come up, uh, or has come up within this during this meeting multiple times. And um, food insecurity was another yes. issue that yes. was brought Michelle up. Michelle Star from and Seattle. Michelle Star from great, Seattle. Great and uh, food insecurity was highlighted in the, hy the hypertension platform session, where again Andrew South from Wake Forest did an analysis of. Um, food security and blood pressure levels in an NHANES sample and showed that um, children were, who had greater food insecurity had higher blood pressure than uh, those who were food secure. And actually during a general PEDS uh, poster session uh, uh, that I attended, um, interesting, it, looking at children uh, with obesity, that one of the major factors was nighttime eating. And we've all seen those nephrology kids with CKD or on dialysis who are overweight and always scratching their head. I thought this was supposed to keep you from growing. Uh, and, and it really makes me go back and remember these anecdotes of the kid on dialysis who woke up at two in the morning with chips and salsa because he was hungry and, and, and then he was overweight. And you're like, okay. So I think, again, paying attention to uh, the, the mal-eating habits of, of our uh, pediatric nephrology patients is probably an area that deserves a lot more attention. As the clerkship director for pediatrics um, at University of Iowa, I've been thinking a lot about how to incorporate more of these types of themes into our 
um, into our didactic sessions or the teaching that we do. I'd gone to an interesting session at uh, our annual educators meeting called ComSEP, and there was a session on this, how you infuse information about social determinants of health into your clerkship. And it's a challenge because the students tend to be so focused on um, step one or on the clerkship shelf exam. Learning the bugs. Learning, yeah, the list and the, yes, yes, um, the lists and the symptoms. But these these types of um, factors and knowing about your patients, who they are and where they live is um, important and equally important. We talked about not just sort of the lower SES spectrum, but then you have um, families maybe that are even uh, very highly educated and very um, uh, very opinionated, and sometimes they challenge your the healthcare you deliver in a different way, um, asking you to do things or not do things based on um, on their particular beliefs. So, Ibrahim, mm-hmm. I'd love to highlight one other uh, sort of non nephrology presentation that I think is really something for our community to think about. So, Kathy Kemper, uh, who's been involved in a, a large pediatric resident burnout study that I'm involved with presented her data with over 3,000 residents. And I, I, I really challenge us to think how this applies to us uh, as practitioners as well as to our fellows. And that work still needs to be done, but what she demonstrated with three years of data over 3,000 residents is that protective factors for burnout in these hardworking residents were really kind of come down to empathy, Self-compassion, you know, forgiving yourself when, when you make a mistake, when things go wrong, when, when you don't do as well as you'd like to do, and ability to manage stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are things that I think all make sense to us, but what, what really hi- what she was able to highlight is if you had problems with those in 2016, you were more likely to be burned out in 2017. If you had it in 2017, you'd be more likely. So these are things that predict future problems. And, and then lastly, uh, uh, picking up the, the signal that if you've had a recent unexpected death, if you've not had a weekend off in a month, you are much more likely to be burned out. And we think a burnout is a yes-no thing, but it's a continuum. Mm-hmm. And we really need to, as a community, think about how we help take care of each other and how we help encourage each other to remain empathetic, to ha- you know, really you know, have self-compassion, not just compassion for others. And then lastly, to develop ways to address stress. There was a recent manuscript, I think it was published in New England Journal of Medicine, about the complexity of pa- of uh, patients that each subspeciality takes care of. This was and adult, adult medicine. It was adult medicine. And med- number one on the list was? Nephrology. Adult nephrology. So, and I think <coughs> the same applies. I mean, our patients are very complicated. We have patients on multiple, multiple medications. Their care involves multiple other subspecialties. They have multiple other comorbidities, and I think all of this puts our residents, our fellows, and us, and us. at risk for burnout. So uh, thank you for sharing um, that. Um, let me ask you about the leadership program, yes. which is a high, yes. a highlight always of every um, year, and I have to admit that I think I was w- a graduate of the first course, right? I yes. think of the first course. Yes. Yes. You and I were in the first cohort yes. together, actually. Yes, excellent, yes. Yeah, so, so yeah, we have our fifth cohort now, and, and this is a member benefit of ASPN. Uh, so we have a, a selection process, and 
individuals uh, who apply. Uh, we, we typically admit 12 to 15 um, members and uh, Dr. Flynn is actually now part of our steering committee. So we have five more senior members who are uh, working on uh, making sure that a curriculum that helps you develop your leadership skills is in place. And as you know, one of the linchpins is the 360 leadership practices where you, you get feedback from your colleagues and your boss as well as your own self-assessment of your leadership skills. And then uh, uh, we have a coach that helps you develop a plan to work on one of those uh, key skills um, that you want to improve over the next year. And we have other activities and, and workshops. And for example, Dr. Flynn talks about a strategic plan because if you're a leader, in, in any level in, in our academic world, you're gonna be contributing to or ultimately depending on strategic plans. And we have workshops and a, a number of other leadership skills. Uh, so yeah, we have 15 uh, ASPN members. And what we expect is that those individuals will be uh, running the committees and sitting on council in the next mm -hmm. few years. And right, the, the program is actually set up by ASPN with the intention of training the next generation of leaders of ASPN. And if you look at current ASPN council and committee chairs, the majority of those people have come through the leadership development program, I believe. So we'd like to really encourage junior faculty and, and, and even mid-level faculty to consider uh, participating. It's a one-year uh, program with three in-person sessions uh, that are tied into PAS, ASN, and then PAS. And uh, we have some really uh, wonderful uh, leaders uh, to help develop people. And when is the next uh, application cycle? So the next one will be in the uh, winter of 2020. So this group will finish um, in the spring of 2020, and then we'll be going out in the winter of 2020. Wonderful. And more to come in, in kidney notes. Mm -hmm. Thank you all. This concludes our podcast recording from day three of the American Society of Pediatric Nephrology annual meeting in Baltimore. We wish you all safe travels back home and hope to see you back next year in Philadelphia.